Hope you brought your Bibles this morning. You can follow along as I read um, 20 verses out of 1 Samuel 1. You follow in your copies as um, we once again explore the vast treasures contained in this book that God saw fit to write. Beginning at verse 1, 1 Samuel 1 at verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite, Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Uh, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you may, that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your, in in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Though they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, then they went back to their house at Ramah, And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. No, guys, I don't know whether while I was reading that anything popped into your little uh, fertile brains, but there's a, there's a lot of similarities in this story and in uh, the story that's contained uh, that is found in Matthew chapter two. Uh, you know what Matthew two is. Matthew two is the record of the uh, 
birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, some of the similarities, for instance, uh, though First Samuel is dedicated to or to describe the, the life and ministry of Samuel, the opening chapter is, is uh, about his birth and with the focus on his mother, just like Matthew 2. Um, in both places, in 1 Samuel 1 and Matthew 2, the, the birth is really a miracle birth. It, it, it required intervention on the part of God for either of these women to ever conceive. Now, of course, uh, the virgin birth was a, was a little bit more miraculous than the other, but they both required and both involved a, a miraculous intervention on the part of God to produce conception. Another similarity is, um, is that both of these women, that is Hannah and Mary, both of them, uh, sang songs. They uh, erupted into song after discovering that they were pregnant. Uh, they were, they, they couldn't contain themselves and worshiped by writing a song. You might remember Mary's is the well-known Magnificat. Uh, there's a fourth similarity, but I, I want to save that to last. Um, but guys, all I'm saying is that there's great similarities in these stories. And although the, the, um, both stories are very, um, undeniably devoted to, um, the life and ministry of Samuel in one instance and Christ in the other, uh, the first chapter of each of these stories is about their birth. And, um, the, the spotlight is on their mothers and, for Samuel 1, it's Hannah, of course, and in Matthew 2, it is, of course, Mary. I want us to look at that story uh, really on, on, uh, under two headings. First of all, I want, I want to show you a trap, a trap that is peculiarly feminine, <laughs> a trap that is um, uh, most often, well, it's designed just for women. And then uh, my second heading is, I want to show you how Hannah escaped the trap. Let's look at the story. The first 10 years of our ministry, we, we was, were spent in, um, in Florida. Now, 75 to 85, if you think Florida has political problems today, uh, what was going on back then is, was far more, I mean, today they have, they face the issue about the seating of their delegates at the, uh, Democratic National Convention. And not to mention that hanging Chad disaster a couple of, several years ago. But back in 75 and 85, uh, oh, excuse me, between the, the high 70s and low 80s, there was an issue going on that some of you remember. You gotta be having a little age on you, but you might remember the, Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA, you remember that? Um, you don't remember the ERA? Well, the ERA had been passed by Congress. And um, it had to be ratified by so many states, and I forget the number, I think it was 36 to 39 or something like that. And all the states in the union had spoken, except Florida. Florida was the, was the last one, and Florida was going to be the deciding vote. Don't you remember this? I mean, maybe you had to be a Floridian back then to to know the, the oh, I mean, people were flying in to, to meet with the state legislature, and it was it was unbelievable this tug of war that was going on in the state of Florida over the Equal Rights Amendment. And uh, ultimately, 
Florida voted against the ERA and it went down in flames. But now those were some really political uh, heated days. These are just peanuts. But uh, guys, whether we passed the Equal Rights Amendment or not, um, my generation, I think, was is kind of responsible for for self-consciously trying to blur the differences between men and women. Um, now, guys, I know that I am in some very shaky waters at this moment, so I'll, I'll try to choose my words carefully. But uh, what we've done, what's happened is, in fact, if you want some big words, um, the... the, the uh, the thrust has been to try and move from a complementarian view of men and women to an egalitarian view of men and women. You know what those words mean? Good. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a little bit safe if you don't. But, but the point is, it's trying to uh, equalize the two genders. Now, guys, I am by no means... By no means am I trying to deny the the equality of men and women in terms of their worth and their value and their their position and their status and all that. But guys, come on. There are differences. And I hope you've noticed by now. Um... You know, there's all these studies about the differences of men and women and, and, you know, whereas there's equality and worth and value and all that. Men are from Venus and women are from Mars or vice versa. You know, all these studies that were done and the one that, that, that really appealed to me the most was a study over, um, I gotta be careful here, uh, over, they were trying to find the number of world-class chess players who were women. Do you know how many they found? None. It has something to do with that right side, right brain, left brain thing. All I'm saying, guys, is there's differences. If it hasn't struck you yet... There are differences, and because there are, there are some challenges that are uniquely feminine, and there are some challenges that are uniquely masculine. The story that we have here this morning in 1 Samuel 1 describes a trap. A trap that is, that is uniquely designed for women. Um, I hope you saw it because guys, um, it's just for you ladies. And, um, I guess maybe the day is just for you. Well, this, this trap is uniquely yours. I want you to look at the text because what you see there is, um, is a man who has two wives and, um, (laughs) that's never a good idea, but, um, he's, um, He's got one who is childbearing and the other who isn't. And the one who is childbearing is taunting the one that that uh, is childless. And, uh, I mean, he's got a real family issue within his own home. 
And, and we're told that Hannah is miserable. She's the one without the children. Um, she, it says in verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly because she was childless and the Lord had shut her womb and childlessness equals barren or barrenness equals worthlessness in this culture. Now guys, um, in the course of 37 years of ministry, I, I have my, I've had opportunities to, to, I guess, try to minister to women who are wrestling with childlessness. And it's not, it's not easy. It's a hard, ugly, bitter battle. But with all due respect, the cultural pressure on Hannah was far greater than the cultural pressure that's on a woman today. And I, and I, I hope to show you why. Gang, for instance, um, a family's economic status depended upon the size of your family. That's not true anymore. Um, every, every business was a family business in this culture, which meant that the more children you had, the more employees you had. That's, that's not something we face today. But not only that, there was no Social Security, as you can well imagine. So your golden years were not used to spend your kids' inheritance. In fact, if you didn't have any kids and you couldn't produce, you're a dead man. Uh, you're a dead woman. Because that was one of the things that families provided was a, a, a safe haven for the elderly. Third, um, bigger families meant bigger armies in terms of your tribe and her safety and her security and her status and her prominence. The bigger your army, the better off you were. And so big families meant big armies meant big prominence in the whole pecking order of Israel. Now, guys, let me tuck this, stick this in here right at this point. There are, there are two men that have greatly influenced my understanding of this chapter. One's a Christian pastor, and the other, but the other is a, is a Jewish Hebrew scholar who, um, who teaches at Berkeley. He has, he has no interest in Christianity. His name is Robert Alter, and he is, he's really brilliant, and his, he's only got two commentaries, but one of them is on 1 Samuel. And Robert Alter, and, I, and I'm going to quote him, uh, Robert Alter says this, and I'm quoting him. He says, in the ancient Near East, a woman's one great avenue to fulfillment in life was through the bearing of, not children, but the bearing of sons. I'll read, in, in the ancient Near East, a woman's one great avenue to fulfillment was the bearing, was through the bearing of sons. Now guys, um, that's not even to mention the ordinary desire of a woman to be a mother. All I'm saying is you got all this cultural pressure and these cultural expectations that are on Hannah. And in addition to that, and by the way, you've got that on you too, but I'm just trying to point it not as, not as severely. 
in addition to the cultural pressures that were on her, there's this natural desire that a woman has to be a mother. But ladies, stay with me. Can you see that those natural desires that you have to be a mother, plus all the cultural pressure that's on you, or at least on Hannah, there is a tendency to conclude that my worth as a woman is tied to what I produce. It's almost unavoidable. There's all this pressure that comes to bear upon at least Hannah and the women in her culture, and you've got pressure too. Uh, maybe different, but it's pressure, and when there is this, there's this almost unavoidable trap that I, I conclude that my sense of worth, my sense of identity, my sense of value as a human being, as a, as a, as a woman, is tied to my productivity. Now, as, whereas the, 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 the cultural pressure on, on Hannah was enormous, there's pressure on you too now. But it's got a different twist. Not only does it include babies, but it also, the cultural pressure also insists on looks, on beauty, on skin, on hair, on teeth, on nails, on figure. You know, there's, it's no wonder that eating disorders among women are rampant. Guys, um, both cultures, this one and ours, has taken a natural, good, God-given desire to be a mother and turned it into a message. And the message is, my value is tied to what I produce and or what I look like. My worth as a woman is tied to what I produce and fast forwarding to the 21st century, what I look like and how I'm shaped. That's a huge trap. Ladies, I, 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 uh, I'll give you this. I probably don't know the half of it as a man. That is, I, I probably don't know the half of the pressure that, that you experience and, and pick up um, in this culture. Now, as a man, um, I have a huge trap too. It's, it's, it's very similar to yours, but it's different. It's similar in the sense that I too am told that my worth is dependent upon what I produce, but my production is a different kind of production. You see, my production is supposed to be something like um, career or success or or um, uh, money or the corner office or something like that. But we both are picking up a message. We uh, we both are we are, are sent a message that that our worth is somehow tied to a productivity of a product that is approved by and acceptable to my culture. 
the, the, the message is to establish our worth through some kind of performance. For men, it's, it's, it's a, it's a brand of performance. For women, it's another brand of performance. But the culture says, if you meet the cultural norms and expectations, then the culture will reward you. It will reward you by pronouncing you valuable. Worthwhile. Successful. But if you fail to meet those expectations, you're worthless. That's what's tucked in this story. You don't meet, you don't live up to all the cultural norms, Hannah. And that means you ain't worth much. Well, the cultures have changed a bit. The expectations are a little bit different. You know, back in the Roman Empire, it used to be very considered quite feminine to be chubby. Well, that changed. That's not true anymore, is it, ladies? But the message is the same. The message is meet the cultural norm, meet the cultural expectations, and then we'll, we'll conclude that you have value. Don't meet them. No value. Now, guys, that's the trap I'm talking about. That's the huge trap. In this particular instance, in this particular story, it's a story about a trap for women. But it's your day. We do have a trap, men. But um, this is not about you. This is not about us. This is about women. Now, guys, I want you to notice, I want you to see how Hannah got out of the trap. How she escaped the trap that she was in. First, let me say it again. Um, to you who have children, if you build your identity on that, you're making an enormous mistake. Because ultimately, that false God will crush you. Somehow, some way, that having some God besides the God as your God is going to crush you. But not only is it going to crush you, it's going to crush your children. Because the message that you're sending your children is this. Listen, sonny boy. Listen, little darling girl. My happiness depends on you. Therefore, I want you to perform well, and I want you to be success so that mommy and daddy can be happy. I want you to be something that I can be proud of so that I can, I can call myself um, a worthy individual. What you're asking your children to do is to carry the freight of your happiness. And they can't do it. You're being cruel to them and you're being cruel to you. Because you have established in the place where God is supposed to be a, a, 
a message that you got from your culture. And the message was, if I am going to have worth and be approved and applauded, I am going to have to perform up to cultural norms. Now, there's only one way to escape that trap, and you see it in this text. And there is a, there's a point in here that um, my uh, Christian pastor friend, it, it, it turns the whole text. I, I want to show it to you. Um, first of all, this is, this is an observation from Robert Alter, that, that Jewish Hebrew scholar at Berkeley. I, I want you to notice, guys, in verses 5 and 8, well, in verse um, 5, we're told that Hannah is given a double portion because her, wife, her husband, Elkanah, loved her. You see that in verse 5? And then in verse 8, her husband says to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why, why don't you eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, guys, here, here's, here's the observation that... I'll, folks, you will notice that she never responds to that. She never replies to her husband. The only time you will see her speak... No, 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 no. The next time you will see her speak. She doesn't speak to her husband... She speaks to God. Now, hang in there, guys. Elkanah, her husband, in essence, comes to her and merely offers her another version of what she's already doing. He comes to her and says, oh, honey, don't don't do what you're doing. I mean, don't get your sense of worth through having sons. No, 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 don't do it like that. Get it from spousal love. No, don't try to get your worth from sense of bearing children. Get it from the fact that you were loved by me. Don't try to produce sons so that you can establish your worth. Just get yourself a man. Ladies, you ever heard that one? It's not dependent upon whether you have children, but you got to have a man in your life. Don't, isn't my love for you, Hannah, enough? Isn't it more to you than to the love of ten, son? Oh, no, honey, you're doing it all wrong. Trying to get your sense of value and worth based on your productivity in terms of children. No, no. Here's who you are. You're my wife. That's how you do it. Just get yourself a man. And if you can get a man, any way you have to do it, then you've got value. Then you've got worth. Hannah never responds to that. And that's a huge hint, guys. She, in essence, rejects that <clears throat> and then she does something that, that that this is the turning point in the text. It's in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, guys, why would God the Holy Spirit see fit to include a little short sentence that Hannah stood up? What does that have to do with anything? What is the fact that she's standing, sitting, swimming, running, parked? Who cares what she's doing? 
I mean, why is that there? Because there's more than just a description of her posture. Gang, what you're seeing is that Hannah has come to a conclusion. Hannah has made a choice. She's made a deliberate decision. She turns, she refuses the offer of her son, of her husband, that is. She rises, she makes a decision, and she heads towards the Lord. And that's what you see her doing next in verses 10 and following. And that, ladies and gentlemen, from this point on, you will watch a woman who has extricated herself from the trap that so many women fall into. She is in essence saying, I am, I am going to go to God and I'm going to ask God to meet my needs. Nobody else. Nobody can meet my needs. And it is nice to be loved of you, Elkanah, but you can't meet my needs. And guys, lest you think that she is in some kind of a horse trading here when she says in uh, verse 11, if you, uh, and, and, and then later, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your then I will give. Lest you think that is somewhat manipulative. There's, there's a couple of things in the text that, that I, I think will, um, will satisfy you. First of all, You'll notice that she commits that son to be a Nazarite. That's that whole thing about no razor shall touch his head. Gang, do you know what a Nazarite? You remember that? You've heard of a Nazarite, uh, the, the Nazarite vow. It's described in Numbers chapter 6. The Nazarite was, was kind of the professional clergy on steroids. What, what uh, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Um, Samson was a Nazarite. And there were three stipulations of a Nazarite. Number one, you could never get a haircut. No haircuts for Nazarites. No razor shall touch his head. Number two, you can never touch anything, drink anything that came from a grape. And then thirdly, you couldn't touch a dead body. And, and that was this, this act of devotion, this act of consecration by saying, I'm not going to get a haircut, I'm not going to drink anything from a grape, and I'm not going to touch any dead corpses. Gang, um, what she in essence is doing, uh, what this means is, I'm going to give him to you and thus, he won't be meeting any of my needs. No, 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 I'm not going to be able to take him over to the temple nursery and check him in over there and let everybody ooh and ah about how cute he is. I'm not going to be able to, you know, uh, put him in the stroller and walk around the block and and let everybody stop me and say, oh, how what's his name? How much did he weigh? He sure is cute. How many teats he got? None of that. Because now, as a Nazarite, as for me and my welfare, he's a goner. When I get old and I need somebody to take care of me, he's not going to be available. No, Lord. No, Lord, I want you to have him. Lord, all of my life, all of my life, I have wanted to be a mother so that that child could meet my needs. But now, Lord, now, Lord, I want a child so that he can meet yours. I I, I want a child that will serve you. All of my life I've wanted to be a mother. 
And you, God, were nothing more than a means to my end. I wanted a child, and I expected you to perform and give me one. But now, God, you were the end. And this child is the means to that great end of seeing you glorified among men. Now, I want a child, but I don't want the child for me. I want the child for you. Guys, her whole definitional center has shifted. I'm no longer a mother who happens to be a Christian. But I'm a Christian who happens to be a mother. And my sense of worth is no longer tied to how I perform. I now perform out of a sense of worth that God has given me. I perform out of worth, not to get worth. Folks, one of those is worship. The other one is idolatry. I want my mothering to be an offering to God. There's one other thing that I want to show you in the text, and then we're, we're just about done. But I want you to notice um, at verse oh, 18. Um, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Gang, I want you to notice the order there. She ends her prayer. She leaves. She eats. And her depression is gone. And she has no idea how God is going to answer her prayer. The, the, the order here, guys, is, is, is not, it, 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 it is, it communicates volumes because now she doesn't know how God's gonna perform, but God is enough for her. The order isn't, she prayers, she prays, she gets pregnant, and then she gets happy. No. She prays, she eats, she gets happy, and she doesn't know how God is gonna respond. And it is only weeks, maybe days, maybe months later that she ends up pregnant. She doesn't say, I pray, oh, I'm pregnant. Now I'll be happy because ultimately I got what I wanted. No, because what she wanted had changed. She prayed. She went home. She ate. And she has no idea. In the midst of her joy, she has no idea that God is going to give her a son. Trap vacated. That's how you get out of it, ladies and gentlemen. God becomes the meter of your needs. And not that other thing, whatever it is.
when I started, I told you that there were four similarities. I, I mentioned three, and I said I was going to let this, save the fourth one to last. Here it is. Samuel, in this book, in 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel is really about David, but 1 Samuel is really about Samuel. Samuel goes on to become a deliverer of God's people. Just like Christ. Samuel, in essence, points us to the ultimate son of promise. Which is why I think, when you read this passage, it makes you think of Christmas. Where there was another miraculous birth. And another deliverer who was born. Guys, Samuel was great, but he couldn't save anybody. Samuel was a, was a champ, but he was no savior. Samuel was good, but he wasn't good enough. The son of Hannah did not die in my place to pay for my sin. But the son of Mary did. Samuel would need a savior, just like me, just like you. And God provided one. A savior whose birth was a miracle. Whose life was an act of worship. And whose death was a payment for the sin of his people. You know his name, don't you? Yeah, I thought you did. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will tell us again all over that our needs are only met when there is no other gods before us than you. That you will tell us all over again that to put anything in your place is to spell disaster for us. To make marriage or to make parenthood or to make success or to make career the thing for which we live will ultimately lead to our own damage and harm. Father, um, thank you that you have reminded us, and I pray that you will watch as your people take heed. And like Hannah, might we rise up to avoid the trap to shake off those guilty fears, to, to make a choice, a deliberate choice, that our needs, our needs are going to be met in Christ Jesus the Lord and there only. Father, if you brought people here this Mother's Day who have not yet met the Savior, oh God, before they get in their car, do a work that is so compelling, so irresistible, 
that it will conclude in a yielding to the great Son of Promise, Jesus Christ. And we pray, of course, in his name. Amen.